We are to beware, and of course this is all connected with the theme, uh, the message of the book of Jude. Uh, We are to enjoy our common salvation. We are to praise God for what He has done, that He saves one individual like He saves the next. There are not levels of salvation. We all have the same salvation. But He says, in understanding that salvation in In enjoying what we have in common, he said, I had to give all diligence to warn you to earnestly contend for the faith. And again, we're not contending against the devil. The devil cannot steal your faith. Uh, the The weapon against the devil is your faith. And so... The issue is, verse 4, there are certain men crept in unawares. Now this is what we must contend against. One preacher preaching on the subject of revival, and and that is where uh, God's blessings come down in a very special way, and uh, there have been instances... In the past, sometimes I think we ignore what real revival is because we center on the phenomena like the Finney revival where he would walk into a factory and people would literally fall on their knees and start pleading to be saved. And they miss the fact that in the 1950s and early 1960s, more independent Baptist churches were started in the United States than any other time in history. And it used to be that nine times out of ten, with the exception of the Northeast, uh, if you went into almost any town in Ohio in the late 60s, wanted to know the biggest church in that town, it'd be an independent Baptist church. Now, that's what revival does, my friends. Amen? Uh, People get all caught up up here and they say, well, the big church is the Catholic church. Well, how many of you have ever been down south? I mean, every corner, great, big, huge buildings. But are they preaching the gospel any more than the big churches up here are? (laughs) Many of them are not. And the reason is, is because people in that church did not earnestly contend for the faith. They allowed their church to be moved. They allowed things that they never thought they would allow. And Jude spends a great portion of this book talking about God's judgment and how he has meted it out eternally and completely and You know, they get caught up in all the details and trying to figure out who the angels are in verse 6 and and where Sodom and Gomorrah were in verse 7 and and try to figure out all these things. And, hey, that's not what Jude is trying to tell us about. He's trying to tell us that God's judgment is the same today as it was then. Beware. And we've heard this and we've addressed this. I've addressed this from this pulpit on many occasions. Don't be one of those people saying, God's judgment is coming. 
I challenge you, look around. It's here. It is here. And what we need to do is we need to earnestly contend for the faith in our own lives and in our own church. Don't get caught up, verse 9, don't get caught up cursing the devil. Not even Michael the archangel. Now you say, where did that story come from? Well, I can tell you this, it didn't come from the book of Enoch, all right? Uh, the book of Enoch was written after the book of Jude, so therefore you tell me where the story came from in the book of Enoch. But the, the truth of the matter is we don't need to know where the story came from because we know all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So we'll just trust God with where the story came from. Amen? And, but the point of the story is not where it came from. The point of the story is if Michael... The archangel would not rail against the devil. Who are you and I to rail against the devil and against his servants? If we're going to contend for the faith, we've got to get out of this personality thing. We've got to get out of trying to attack someone and use adjectives that are just demeaning and simple, what we need to do is, hey, this is what the Bible says. Now, it's real easy when we do that to see that Benny Hinn is a fake, phony fraud. You said, well, you just called him names. No, we just designated him by the Scripture who he is. And we can see by the Scripture. But... How many of you ever had the thought, and, and this is a scary thought, but it ties in with everything we're saying tonight, Barack Obama may be the will of God for the United States of America. That's God's judgment. It's part of it. And we better be careful who we're cursing, lest we be found to fight against God. Does that make sense? And what we need to do, if we want God to bless this land, here's how he's going to do it. When his people, which are called by his name, remember that verse out of Chronicles? Shall humble themselves, they'll seek God's face and pray. Don't expect the wicked people to be righteous. That's not what they are. They're wicked people. But as righteous people, as the children of God, should we not earnestly contend in our lives to be different, to be God's children, realizing that the more we are God's children and the farther toward God's judgment this world moves, there's going to be more distance between us and the world. True Christianity is going to appear more and more radical until it becomes absolute insanity to a person who's embraced the things of this world. Is that, are we still together? And so uh, there's, there's been a history, if you'll follow it, the world is heading toward the final consummation, the great tribulation, God's judgment upon mankind 
Armageddon, the destruction of everything we know upon this earth. But the church, not the true church, but many people who claim to be Christians have just followed about this far behind. So if we go 50 years ago, they were back here. We go 100 years ago, they were back here. But the distance is the same. That's what the book of Jude is warning us about. Let the world go. You grab a hold of the word of God and stay there. Amen? And so we get here and we're down to verse 11 now as we're just running through uh, the book of Jude. Uh, somebody told me Brother Paulman preached a very short sermon last Thursday night, so I'm going to make up for it tonight, all right? And um, we're down to verse 11 where woe is pronounced upon these people. And remember, verse 12, these are spots in your feast of charity. These are people who show up for church on Sunday morning. These are people who come and say they are Christians but are not. And we move down here to verse 16. They are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lust, and their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. And this is where we ended up last week. And there are just certain people that have an advantage in this world in which we live. Um, they, I mean, we talk about uh, the movies and, and television and, our, and the movie star crowd. I mean, there is something different about those people. How many people try out for the movies? Uh, I wish I had not met so, met so many that have come through our very church here. I'm going to be on Broadway. Well, and I tried to tell them, listen, the people who run that place say that there's a light on Broadway for every broken heart of someone who tried to get there. That's what they say. Uh, let me tell you, it's more than one broken heart for every light on Broadway. And by the way, if you've ever been to Times Square, there's a lot of lights. A lot of people try for these things. But the people that make it, they have an advantage. And they use that advantage. You ever wonder why the television preachers are the television preachers? It's because they look like television preachers. And they sound like television preachers. And I can't even do a good imitation. But they have an advantage. Do you think anyone would listen to Joel Olstein if he had a voice like mine? I mean, just stop and think about it. The only reason people listen is because they know it's written down. That's the way it ought to be. The messenger ought not be the focus. It ought to be the message. Amen? Now, these people who have this advantage, 
I mean, they're going to speak great swelling words. They're going to use people's admiration of them to further their own goals. How many of you remember back when it finally got out to the news media that many of these televangelists had a fleet of Cadillacs as one did and another one had three or four limousines. I mean, how in the world do you go somewhere in three limousines? But they have all of these things. Why? Because of their advantage. Now let's get down. Now this is what we are to do. This is the heart of the letter and it's contained in just a few verses at the end here. It says, But beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we read verse 17 and it says, I want you to remember the words. Now, God is always concerned with His words. And by the way, the author here of Jude has talked about the words of Enoch. He's talked about the words of Michael. He's talked about the words of the prophets. And he treats the words of the apostles on an equal plane because they're both Scripture. And some people have tried, and, and I don't know how you do this, you, you have to go, they've tried to take this verse and say, you see, this verse right here proves that the book of Jude was not written during the lifetime of the apostles, but was written 150 to 200 years later at the earliest. Well, number one, we know that's not true because the book of Jude was in the Codex of the Bible before 150 A.D., so it had to come from somewhere, amen? It was already there. But all Jude is saying is, he said, I'm writing you about the common salvation. Who told them about the common salvation? Uh, maybe Paul did. Was he an apostle? Uh, do you think Peter had told some people about the common salvation? Was he an apostle? How would they know that they had a common salvation if the apostles hadn't been there and told them first? Do you see how simple the Bible is when you allow the Bible to say what it meant? Jude was just, he, as far as we know, he was one of the half-brothers of the Lord. He could have been as much as 10 or 15 years younger than Jesus was. He would have been a very young man when all of these things happened. And now he is writing to remind them of the things that the apostles had already taught. And it goes back to teach us one thing, the very thing they're trying to unteach. God's word was already well established. What was Bible and what was not. The apostles had already written. How many times did Paul say in his books... Beware of false teachers. In the book of Galatians, he said, if we were to come back, he said, let us be accursed if we change the message that was already given. And he says, but beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that they told you there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own 
ungodly lust. This is how you can tell the false teachers from the truth. I can't tell you how many pieces of literature I've picked up over the years and start reading it and, boy, this, who is this from? This sounds pretty good. And about halfway through, all of a sudden it says, now if you'll believe on Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can have riches and health and, and all of a sudden they divert off into the field of human desires and human needs. That's what it means by walking after their own God, ungodly lusts. What does the Bible say about the things that we need in this life? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. Do you think the God who is good enough to send His Son to die in your place and to save your eternal soul is going to be so uncaring that he wants you to starve and wear clothes with holes in them and be a poor beggar and a vagabond while you live here on earth. Does that make sense to anybody? But it's so easy to reverse that and get my cares and my desires first. No, God will never solve any of those things until you get him first. That's what salvation is. That's what living for the Lord is. And it does not mean that we'll never suffer privation of any kind and we'll always have everything we want, but we'll have everything we need to serve Jesus Christ. Paul was serving the Lord in a prison cell the last several years of his life. In fact, if you take a look at the last eight or ten years of Paul's life, it was more in prison than it was out of prison. Yet, Paul had what he needed to serve the Lord. And it says these people are going to come. They're going to mock. They're going to walk after their own ungodly lust. Now look at verse 19. This is interesting. These be they who separate themselves. Have you ever met anybody? Said, oh, don't get too close to me. I don't want to be, I don't want to be affected by your lack of spirituality. I remember a fellow that I went to Bible school with. He, did, he wasn't there very long. It, the first time you saw him, you were just like, wow, is this guy spiritual or what? I mean, we'd be waiting to sit for church and I'd be sitting there with a group of my friends and we'd be talking and maybe joking around and just having a, a rejoicing in the Lord and all that and he'd be over there just studying his Bible. And, and you try to talk to him. And, oh, no, no, I don't have time to talk. I got to study my Bible. Found out a little later he was trying to figure out whether he was Jesus Christ or not. And he wasn't sure whether he'd come the first time or the second time. And, and he was a real nutcase. But there used to be churches. They called them holiness churches. If you walked in the back door, I have wireframe glasses on tonight. 
They would say, now, if you're going to come in here, you're going to take those things off. They said, well, it wouldn't do me any good to go to church without my glasses on because I wouldn't be able to tell who anybody is or what's going on. Uh, if you had a gold ring on your finger, even wedding bands, they would say, you can't take that off. Ladies, if you came in with the least bit of color on your face or on your lips, they actually would tell you to wash your face before you walked in the auditorium. Can you imagine such a thing? You go into those same churches today and people show up in jeans and t-shirt and all manner of immodest apparel with a rock concert on the platform every service. What happened? Well, look what it says here. Who separate themselves, what's the next thing? Sensual. That's where it goes. Having not the Spirit, separation for the sake of separation is nothing but Phariseeism. Sophistry, if you want the other word. And no matter who separates themselves, eventually that separation is going to lead them right back where they came from. I've often warned you, do not study the monastic movement. You know, the monks and the friars and the nuns that live in the monasteries and all of that. Why did they start this? They wanted to be separate from the filthy, evil world in which they lived. And yet, in that separate society in which they lived, the most evil and diabolical deeds ever committed by mankind became a regular part of monastic history. They separated themselves, but they took their sensuality with them because that's what's in the human heart. It is the Word of God that constrains the human heart and keeps us away from that sensuality. It is the Word of God. If the Holy Spirit is living in us, what is the Holy Spirit going to do? Jesus said, he shall testify of me. The Holy Spirit, if you've been through our discipleship, we try to make a big point of this in Lesson 6 on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not going to teach you anything that isn't already written down. Do not allow yourself to enter the world of perception, premonition, of feelings, that is right where the devil wants you. How many of you have ever felt really good about something bad? It's called temptation. We've all been there, have we not? He said, if I, you know, just, just one more cream puff. Just one more servant. I, I'm, now, see, I don't have to worry about the sugary stuff. That's never been, at least to this point, has never been a big problem for me. I, I'd rather have another plate with meat and potatoes and, of course, lots of gravy. Uh, that, that'll kill you. But listen, all of those things are signs of, that's what the Bible means when, 
it talks about the word sensual. It's not talking just about immorality. It is talking about things which can be perceived with our senses. Have you ever met anyone? I don't need to go to church. I worship God in nature. So do the Buddhists and the Hindus. But they're not going to heaven, neither are you, my friend. If you separate yourself so that you can feed your senses, the Bible says right here, you do not have the Holy Spirit. And if you don't have the Spirit, you are not saved. It's just that simple. If you have the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is going to bring you back to the Bible. It's going to be back to the Bible, back to the Bible, just what the Bible says. And this is why we are given the command to earnestly contend for the faith. Because if you have not battled against your sensuality, your senses desiring to be gratified, if you've not battled against them this week, it's because you've given in to them this week. Are we still together? And so, as we earnestly contend for this faith in our own personal lives, and then we bring that personal purity together in a place called church, we're going to encourage one another to be obedient to the Word of God. And I don't know about you, but that is my greatest need. And that is your greatest need, is to be encouraged to live the words of God. It says, but ye beloved, look at the next phrase, I'm getting ahead of myself, building up yourselves on your most holy faith. Faith cometh by hearing by the Word of God. The Holy Spirit is what teaches us the Word of God. It's what reinforces the Word of God in our life. The Holy Spirit is what allows us to understand the words of God because these are not man's words. Man's spirit cannot understand these words. How many of you remember before you were saved trying to read the Bible? Man, that's just confusion. Who makes any sense out of that book? It's just a bunch of contradictions. Well, without the Holy Spirit of God to put it in its proper place, that's what the Bible is. You get the Holy Spirit of God living in you, it's going to put some agreement in you. And agreement with this book is what we need. Amen? And if we agree with the Word of God, guess what we're doing? We're building up ourselves on our most holy faith. Because if you don't believe it enough to live it, go to James chapter 2, it's dead faith. And dead faith will not get you across the gap between this life and eternity. You must have a living faith in a living God through the living Word. And that faith, praise God, cannot be lost, but it must be built upon. It must be maintained. It must be worked at. It says, believing 
I mean, building up yourselves on your most holy faith. And then the next phrase is praying in the Holy Ghost. Now, uh, I've talked about this and we're, we're going to, hopefully Sunday we'll, we can set some dates here and, and I want to have a, a special prayer meeting and, and some things like that in the next little bit, but I'm, I want to be careful because sometimes when we call for a special day of prayer, we get an attitude of, oh boy, here it comes. This is my spiritual vitamins. This is going to just make me super Christian. And nothing will destroy a day of prayer like that quicker than that attitude. Our praying has to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God is going to influence us through the written Word of God. If we're not in the Word... The Holy Spirit can't influence us, and if He can't influence us, our prayers are, as it says in the book of Romans, for we know not how to pray as we ought. And that's where we waste a lot of energy. If you want to earnestly contend for the faith, here's how you do it. There's three steps here. Uh, it's I mean, several steps, but it's all put in two verses here. Number one, verse 20, But ye beloved... Building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. Verse 21 is the second part. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, if we could just live that one phrase, it would solve every problem that you face in this life. Keep yourselves. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, before we try to figure out exactly what this is saying, number one, I want you to understand, God never commands you to do something that cannot be done. God never tells you to do something that is impossible to do. Now, He tells us many things in the Scripture that is impossible for us to do in our own effort or through our own ability. We cannot get saved on our own. We cannot live for Christ on our own. We've got to have His power and His presence living in us, flowing through us. But God never tells us something that cannot be accomplished. And so this idea of building up ourselves on our most holy faith is something that can be done and must be done. It's a command. Praying in the Holy Ghost is something that can be done and must be done. It's a command. Keeping ourselves in the love of God is something that can be done and must be done. It's a command. How do we do that? Number one, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Do you remember the definition of mercy? Mercy is what the vanquished receives from the victor after he's admitted defeat and is willing to reconcile 
with the new authority in his life. Isn't that true? When we have a battle and one side loses, more often than not, the victor will go to the vanquished and say, here are the terms of peace. If you will abide by these terms and you will cease fighting, we will try to make the best of this horrible situation. That's what happened in Japan after World War II. That's what happened in Germany, West Germany, after World War II. That's what will happen in the life of everyone who will come to God and admit that they cannot save themselves. He will save you. But He wants you to live under His authority and stop fighting. What do you do with an enemy that will not surrender? I believe it was one American general said, What do you do with an enemy who wants to die for his country? He says, You help him. Because you cannot have reconciliation with someone who will not give up. If you will look for the mercy of the Lord. You know how you do that? Jesus said, or I mean Paul actually was saying, I die daily. Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow me. Does that sound like surrender to you? It does to me. And if we will do that, if we will die to ourselves, in fact, Jesus said, if a man shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, he'll save it. He that's going to save his life, he that's going to keep his life, he that's going to realize those sensual things that his senses can perceive, and desire them above the things the gospel gives, he's going to lose his life and lose his eternity. Keep yourself in the love of God. Surrender to him anew every day. Look for his mercy. Walk in that mercy because that mercy is what leads us unto eternal life. How many of you have ever been consumed with a problem here on earth? A situation between you and another person. i got to fight constantly. I want to be consumed with this baptistry project. I just want this thing done. I mean, I've been giving you reports since the middle of November on this thing. I said, it doesn't seem like it's been that long. For me, it seems like it's been half an eternity. I just like to get this thing done. But you know what? I can get frustrated and scream at the building department and say bad things about them and all this. Is that going to help me? It's not going to make them like me when I show up, let me tell you. It's not going to help us at all. But if I'll keep my attention on the Lord Jesus Christ and realize that in heaven we won't need a baptistry, amen? 
We'll just let the Lord help us get it finished in His time. He'll solve that problem. That's how we build ourselves up on. It's interesting, that little word on doesn't say in, it says on. When God, on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And this next part is a continuation because it starts with the word and. If we're going to keep ourselves in the love of God, we've got to look for that mercy. But you know what else we have to do? We have to have compassion on others. I mean, even the most secular of psychologists that have, want to have nothing to do with the Bible have realized that the greatest thing that a person can do who is suffering from depression and suffering from many problems, go help somebody else. That's why they take little animals and bring them into the psychiatric wards. Because those people, no matter how bad they are, can give a little love to that little puppy and he'll be grateful for it. And they'll feel better about themselves. But isn't that just a lie in reality? But if you've really been used of God to actually help someone else out, I'll tell you what, there's no better, no better feeling, no better reward in this life than to watch someone else walk in the ways of God. Amen? It says, and of some have compassion, making a difference. Could you find somebody to care about? I believe you could. I believe God answered that prayer. And by the way, that will help you stay in the love of God when you share it with someone else. Amen? And what's the next one? And others save with fear. Now, that one's not quite so nice. But sometimes you just simply have to address the situation at hand. If someone refuses compassion, I mean, they are standing there in the building. The building is on fire and the fireman says, I've come to save you. Most people go, oh, thank you and fall into the fireman's hands and he carries them down and everything's wonderful. Other people, they fight because they're panicked. They don't know what's going on. They tell all people who are trained as lifeguards, and I'm not one of them, that don't get too close to someone who is thrashing about and panicking in the water because they can put you in a death grip and both of you will drown. And it says, let them go down once or twice. Let them start to tire out before you pull them back. Sometimes you got to let people know, hey, 
If you don't stop thrashing, you're going to die. If you don't stop fighting against God, do you understand there's a place called hell? That's what it means. Some say by fear. It says pulling them out of the fire. Remember one time several years ago I got a call and a fellow said, my nephew's dying of cancer. I, I want you to go visit him. And I had no idea what I was getting into. We get some of these calls and I was very careful and tried to be. And, and uh, I said, now listen, I want to know something here. I said, when I get over there, if I tell them that you sent me, am I going to be in trouble? Oh, don't tell them that. I said, so you're asking me to go in and straighten out the mess you've already made with your family. Well, preacher, I wouldn't put it that way. Well, I went over there. And boy, I mean, I knocked on the door and the young boy who was dying, his wife was there in the apartment and his mother was visiting trying to help take care of him and and he was only in his late 20s at the very most dying of brain cancer. And I began to talk and I said, you know, I said, I'm not going to, I said, uh, your, your brother sent me over and I could just see her stiffen up. And I was going, oh boy, here we go. And her basic question is, are you going to be a jerk like he is? And I said, no, ma'am. I said, I'm not that way. If you'd allow me to talk, I'd, I'd be happy. And make a long story short, even though he could not communicate verbally, he could communicate uh, by nodding his head and different things. And he, he allowed me to share with him the gospel. And he, by his motions and the signs that he made, claimed that he trusted the Lord as his Savior. Because he could hear me, I just couldn't hear him. And it was an amazing time, and his mother told me later, says, he, he died about a week later. But he was constantly, before you came, he was constantly in fits of panic, almost like seizures. Said after you dealt with him and after he settled that thing, he was calm right on through. So a little bit we can see. Talk about pulling someone's feet out of the fire. He was already two-thirds into eternity. And by the way, I don't put a lot of stock because I like to be able to talk somebody about their soul. Amen? I hope and pray I'll see him on the right side of eternity. From everything I can perceive and see in this lifetime, I, I believe I will. Because God's willing to save anybody as long as they still have life. As long as you can still trust in Jesus Christ, He'll save you. Amen? But it's going to be... It's going to be a sad day for those people who were saved by fire, were pulled out of the fire because they'll have nothing to offer the Lord. I love the story of the thief that was saved on the cross, don't you? 
but when it comes to cast those crowns at his feet, what is the thief going to have to offer? Because his whole life had been spent doing his own thing. Only the last few moments were given to the Lord Jesus Christ. But don't stop pulling them out of the fire. Amen? You see, these are the things that are going to keep us in the love of God. When you begin to deal between this life and eternity, it's going to change your entire perspective on everything else you deal with. All of a sudden, that person that hates you at work is not going to be such a big deal anymore. Because you're doing the work that's going to last for all eternity. Amen? This is how we keep ourselves in the love of God. This is how we build up ourselves on our most holy faith. And we got two more verses. And I believe we can sum these verses up in just a very short moment. The first phrase of each verse, Now unto Him. To the only wise God, our Savior. If you're going to serve God, it's got to be about God, not about you. Jesus cannot keep you from falling if you're too busy concerned about yourself. How many of you remember gym class in the second grade when they put up that horrible thing called a balance beam? It was only six inches off the floor. Does anybody else have to face the tortures of that thing? I mean, there were two things in gym class that were just insurmountable to me as a little boy. I still am scarred all my life. One is the rope. The other is the balance beam. I got a little older. I can handle that rope, but not the balance beam. Never. That is just not who I am about. I want to keep both feet on the floor, and any of those guys that have helped with the construction, they, they know what it's like to climb with me up on the scaffolding. I'm just sitting there shaking, and uh, we get the work done, but I don't like that stuff. I, I like to be right down as close to the ground as I can possibly be. But you know what? You get your focus on what's really important, and God will take your focus off of all those other things. Finally, the gym teacher got so frustrated and reached out a hand and I walked the balance beam. Amen? You know what? That's the way it is in real life. If you'll just get a hold of Jesus' hand, He'll keep you from falling. He will present you faultless, not because of what you have done, but because of what He has done. Amen? And if we could spend a little more time glorifying God. Now look at this set here. It says, to the only wise God, our Savior. Boy, I wish we could get our politicians to understand a little bit about that. The only wise God, not the economic czar, not the drug czar, uh, not the boogeyman czar, not the whatever czar they have. They're not that smart. There's only one wise, and that's God. Glory. That means it's about Him, not about me. I can't accomplish anything 
without him doing the work. So I'm going to glorify God instead of give praise to man. Amen? Majesty. Would you mind recognizing God for who he is? Don't you think that would solve some problems that we face in this life? How many times have you ever said, Dear Lord, how are we going to get through this problem? Well, you know, you got a problem here because you're not recognizing His majesty. He's got the power to solve that problem. Then it says, dominion. Could we willingly submit ourselves to His authority? You know, sometimes God does ask His children to suffer. Would you be willing to suffer if it's God's will for you to suffer? Or are you going to spend the whole time trying to tell him why it shouldn't be his will for you to suffer? When he, in his majesty and in his glory, knows that it is the best thing in the world for you to suffer. There are certain lessons in this life you cannot learn without suffering. Dominion. And we worry whether God has the power to make us, get us through. That should be the least of our worries. Sometimes we actually blaspheme God in our prayers because we're so worried about what God's going to do and how He's going to do it and what it's going to cost me and, and, and how much it's going to hurt and all of these things. And if we could just get our eyes off of us and put it on God and realize He's the only wise one, He's the one that deserves the glory... And by the way, if you want the devil to leave you alone, just start giving God the glory. You want protection from the devil, start glorifying God. Start thanking Him for who He is and recognizing His power. And let me tell you something, the devil's going to run away. He can't handle that. His glory, His majesty... His dominion, and His power. Today, both now and forever. And all God's people said, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this night and we thank you for this wonderful book of Jude. Lord, we pray that you would help us to do these things.